Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we break down the eight-chapter docuseries, Trial 4. I'm joined by Remy Burkell, Trial 4's director. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series and then listen on to this podcast. Trial 4 is a timely, sweeping story about criminal justice, police power, and systemic racism in America. It documents the history of Sean Ellis, who faced three trials before he was found guilty of the 1993 murder of Boston police officer John Mulligan, a crime he says he never committed. My name is Sean Ellis. And I was wrongfully convicted of murder at 19. Now I'm facing my fourth trial and the possibility of going back to prison for life. The death of a police officer. It's not handled like other homicides, and this one wasn't. The sense we got was Mulligan's past had caught up with him. And when a black kid got arrested, it's like, where'd that come from? Here we go again. In my opinion, Sean Ellis executed John Mulligan. I was scared. I was confused. My son was in jail for murder. Yo, give us the keys. The first words out of Sean's mouth is, I was there that night. I crossed that bridge my cousin. I came out and went home. Down on my knees. Why would somebody put themselves in the middle of a homicide if they were involved? Yeah. The cops were just looking for someone to pin this murder on. Ellis was convicted by the work of corrupt police detectives. The corruption within the Boston Police Department is what drove this investigation. Remy, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you very much for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations. The documentary is astounding. And one of the things that I want to ask you about right off the bat is how you became involved with it. Tell me a little bit about your history as a filmmaker and how you came across this project. So um, I'm French-American, and I'm basically at the base. I'm an actor. I wanted to go into Mm. acting. And then through after acting school, I actually moved to London and went to acting school. And I thought I made a short film in acting school. And then I thought, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to direct. I want to make films. Um, and my, so my base is basically through theater and making films. I was, a, I was on, on a lot of fiction. I did a, I've directed a lot of fiction, commercials, even a very famous puppet show that was called Spitting Image in England. But in France, it was a very it was a political satire puppet show. And little by little, I got interested in documentary. And I did a little bit of docufiction. Uh, like crime, you know, real, real true crime scene type things that I did um, um, in France and in, in through Canada. And at one point while I was doing this, this puppet show, one of the producers, of the puppet show came and said, listen, there's this, there's these guys who want to do a, a trailer. They're doing this incredible documentary, but they want to make it into a series. They think they have a great series and it's called, um, you know, it's a Michael Peterson story. And so he said, here's, Here's 45 minutes of raw footage. Can you make a trailer in an American style since you're French-American and you speak English? Can you, can you do this? So I sat down with a, an editor and we, drew, you know, we, we edited this thing. I wrote it and edited it. And 
four or five days later, I met these two guys. One was named Jean-Xavier Lestrade, and the other was Denis Ponset, who was uh, one of the producers. And we showed them the trailer of what was they were going to sell as their series, um, which mm. became Staircase. And when they saw it, they just said, excuse my language, oh, fuck, this is great. <laughs> and they said, don't change a thing. Don't change a thing. So since it's so good, why don't you come on board and, and you, you can design the opening credits and you can design whatever we need done graphically. And I, I said, hey, I'd love it. I, I, that's one of the things I studied, didn't finish, but I studied in, in college was graphic design and journalism. So I was more than happy. And what, what happened was that, that during the year and a half they were editing that, I was there constantly coming and watching the episodes because they also asked me to do the, um, to do the, you know, the little coming up next, next on, you know, next on staircase and all those things. So I got it like a, a full on education of how to make Verite documentary because they just let me hmm. hang out there and talk to them and watch everything that was going on. So that's how I got to know them. Fast forward a little bit, they start a new series called Sin City Law, and they asked me to mm -hmm. do again the trailer for that, um, which I did. And then they said, well, would you be interested in directing it? And so I was, yeah, I was like, of course I would be interested in directing it. And I ended up directing for them. For Jean-Xavier Lestrade was still the producer and Alison Luchak as well. And we did um, 10 hours of um, criminal cases in, in Las Vegas in the same style. They were shorter, obviously, than Staircase, which is now 15 hours. Um, we did in two one-hour parts. We did you know, different murder cases in Las Vegas. And that is how I got involved with them. And then they contacted me a couple of uh, three and a half years ago and said, listen, we're trying to put together this new show. Would you be interested? And, um, and then they told me about the Sean Ellis story and, and the Mulligan murder. And I said, of course, <laughs> this, is, this is just an, a stunning story, just an amazing story. I just want to make a note, Remy, that the title sequence for The Staircase, which I had no idea you had anything to do with, has become a thing that, like, everybody has copied now for years and years <laughs> and years. Like, you created something that became, like, the way that this is done. And, you know, anybody who listens to my other podcast, Crime Writers On, knows that I frequently refer to The Staircase as the Citizen Kane of true crime. I think it's one of the greatest, not just criminal justice documentaries, but documentaries ever made. I actually think Trial 4 is very much on par with The Staircase. So it's interesting to hear about that connection and, and your work with that team. I'm curious, you talked about starting this documentary three and a half years ago. How long did this take to make? Because it is exhaustive. Um, I would say, well, first, teamwork. It's it's all about teamwork. Um, first on, you have to know that Gamont, um, who does who also produces Narcos, came to Jean-Xavier and said, we'd like, you know, after the success of making a murder, maybe we we could think about doing some, another, you know, another courtroom drama series or a legal series. So he they, they set out Jean-Xavier and Mathieu Belgiti, What's Up Films in France, contacted Alison Luchak, again, of, of, of Staircase fame, amongst other things, and said, let's start, you know, Go, go into the people you know, call the lawyers you know, and let's see what, if we can come up with, an, you know, with a comparable story. Backwards a little bit. Beginning of year 2000, Jean-Xavier Lestrade won an Oscar for Murder on a Sunday Morning, the story of that, a young black kid that was accused of, of murdering during a holdup uh, a white woman. And I think in his mind, he was probably thinking, well, that was back then, 25 years later, or 20 years later, sorry, 
is the justice system the same thing? Is the same, you know, are the police still corrupt? Are they still basically finding the usual suspects who are often black and, and convicting them of crimes that they never did? And so when Alison Luchak stumbled on the, um, I can't say stumbled, found the, the, the Sean Ellis case um, through Rosemary Scapiccio, his attorney, his current attorney, that resonated very heavily with Jean-Xavier Lestrade saying, ah, through this case, we can look 20 years down the line. Has the American justice system changed? Have the police changed their practices? And so that's how it. they found the story. And they went to meet originally Rosemary to say, Rosemary Scapiccio to say, sit down with her and say, here's who we are. Here's what we do. Mm. And and as you say, staircase speaks volumes. I mean, most yeah. most people know in the, in the in that you know in the profession because it has been used for as a teaching uh, teaching aid in law schools all over the United States and, and in, in France as well. Um, so it's all, it all resonates. As you say, it resonates. I would say the differences are that we we do go much more into the context than staircase does um, in the context yes. of Boston, the history of the city. And the history of the Boston police, which took a lot. That that was where we had to go deep, deep, deep back, you know, to the rev beyond before even before the revolution when it was a settlement. You look at everything and then you meet as many people as you can and you read thousands and thousands of pages of the trial transcripts, case files, anything we could get our hands on, we were reading. So there you have it. That's why it takes so long. Mm. <laughs> and that's before shooting. I definitely will have some questions about the particulars of some of the material you got. Yeah. But I have to ask you, um, it's interesting to hear that, you know, Rosemary was sort of interested in the beginning and working on this because really the key to this documentary is your access to the defense. And you have access to the other side, too. You know, cops who say that it was a quote, clean case, which clearly was not, but... White as snow, white as snow. McNally, yeah. his case is as white as snow. <laughs> oh, God, those guys. Uh, Sean Ellis and uh, Rosemary Scapiccio, um, it, it can't hurt that they are two incredibly compelling uh, individuals themselves. Sean is instantly lovable. I mean, he's he just exudes a warmth and a vulnerability and an intelligence and an interest in uh, learning more and in doing more to advocate for people outside of his own case. And Rosemary, I mean, did you know when you met her and you started filming her that she was going to become, uh, I, I'm sure, she's going to become an icon like in Netflix <laughs> documentary history. She's going to be one of those characters that you can pick when you log into Netflix and you have somebody as your face. Like she is going to be one of those people. Did you know instantly that, you know, you really had two like stars on your hands when it when it really came time to tell this very complex story about criminal justice? I I, I think what to your point, when we meet you meet Rosemary, there's no doubt about it. You know, you know she's iconic and she's just She's a she's like a pit bull. She never lets go. And she's fighting. I mean, when you look at the footage from the Sean Drumgold case, which was already out there, you look at her and you watch the way she goes at things and the way she goes at the police. She's she's fearless. And I would say her, there's no doubt when you meet first meet Sean, you're wondering, how is he going to come off? How are people going to read him? Mm. Because he sometimes has a shyness to him. There's a slight stutter to him. Um, he's not used to cameras around him. He's not used to the attention. You wonder at the beginning, and then little by little, we grew on him, I think, and he grew on us. I mean, I'm very, very attached to Sean. I'm very, like Rosemary, I've become very protective of Sean, and I talk a lot with Sean. We, 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 talk, we were talking, we were texting last night. 
We talk on a regular basis. He's he's become a friend. And I mean, I'm, I feel humble and, and, and honored to have him as a friend because he is such a great person. And you work, you know, it, it, you approach it little by little. At the beginning, Rosemary was kind of, you know, she was standoffish too. She was a little blunt and she was a little, you know, she's very busy, lots of cases. So you have to take, it takes time. But as you can see in the series and, and, and what, you know, what, again, Staircase brings and my experience with Sin City Law was the fact that you just sit there and you play the fly on the wall. You're very discreet and you just watch what's happening in front of you. And the fact that we weren't mm. looking for that soundbite, you know, that, that little extraordinary moment where just, you know, law takes time. It takes time to build these cases. So you just watch those things and you let time, you know, an eight hour, eight hour series is great because you have the time. And I'm very grateful for Netflix for letting us go that long and mm. let us time just to distill the story. I found myself when I was watching this initially thinking because, you know, frankly, in, in, with what I do reviewing uh, documentaries and true crime and all this stuff, sometimes I have to watch like a lot of ham fisted bad stuff. Um, and I found myself watching this and watching the scenes of Rosemary meeting with Sean and her working on the case. And, you know, I'm trained as a viewer of a lot of this content to think like, OK, they're just pretending like they're doing this work right now for the cameras. It became very clear to me very shortly into watching this that you were actually initially making a documentary about prep for a fourth trial. You had no reason to believe, given the timeline in which you're working on this, that a fourth trial might not happen. So a lot of what we were seeing was prep for a trial. We were watching a lawyer do her work. And I'm wondering if, if you being there ever, if, if you felt like your presence like influenced the way they talked about it, or did it was it really what we saw, as natural, as you know, gritty, as kind of pen to paper work as we saw on the screen? It was um well, Rosemary doesn't she doesn't act. I mean I mean acting acting <laughs> lawyers act. I mean lawyers in a courtroom you tend to act. In France it's even worse. You they're great they're 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 grandstanding. But no, Rosemary is just to the point, and she said, you know, I'll let you have access to to what she felt would not put her client in any kind of, you know, in, in, in any kind of situation. So, yeah, no, they just went at it. And, and I said, since we don't intervene, except there may be a technicality at the end of a scene, and I'll say, Rose, can you just go over that again with a, you know, to explain to her what was the, you know, what was the, the important in that scene? Once these scenes happen, you also go into the editing and you say, Put yourself in the spectator's place so that they understand why this bit of information is important and what it's going to link to in the next scene. It's a little bit like writing for fiction. Um, and Rosemary just, they just, no, no, no. They were just living there, living that scene. Um, hmm. She doesn't have a lot of time. So you just get in there, you shoot it, and she's and she does what she has to do with Sean, and then she gets out. We did cut a lot of stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot of material that ended up on the editing room floor because it gets too technical and it gets too long-winded. Right. For people to understand. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you do have to make those choices. And I'm sure there were details of the case that, you know, you would have included if you were making a 30 hour documentary. I'm curious about how you obtained some of the footage we see, the archival footage, especially around the Boston police and this group of officers in particular. One camera shot that I have to ask you about, and I'm sure other people have asked you the same question. Why was there a camera inside that patrol car of that cop who showed up at the scene at Walgreens? What were they filming? Well, as you know, since since you know a lot about these crime shows, that was just another crime show that where they were following the state police that night, 
Huh. And they just happened over the radio. The guy heard about that this there was a you know a police officer down at a Walgreens in Roslingdale, and he just fall he just went with it. And when we stumbled on that, it was just like I can't. Oh my God, I can't believe in real time this is happening. And it's the same thing as you see in the um, in this Charles Stewart, the murder the, that man who who ended up turning it turned out he murdered his wife. Right. Same thing. It was another. They were they were following. There was a crew camera crew following the ER. The ambulance that was going, that headed over to that, you know, just happened to be that in that ambulance that night following those people. So it's too, you know, because in America there are so many shows like that, we're just lucky, very lucky. You know, the whole case that Rosemary is putting together to exonerate Sean is predicated on the fact that Mulligan, the victim, was very much a part of this incredibly corrupt group of cops. It is so corrupt when we hear the stories about how they did their work, about, you know, just day to day. It seems like their corruption was just something that other officers who served with them just kind of took for granted. But it's almost stranger than fiction, the way that these guys did their work. Were you at all surprised the extent to which these cops were committing crimes and being corrupt as part of their day to day job? Because it's like watching The Departed, hearing the stories about these guys. It's bigger than fiction. When we were delving into the case, you just kept learning more and more and more. And obviously, Rosemary said things, but you're thinking, okay, this is a defense attorney speaking to you. She's defending your client. But as we read, we just got, it just, there's more. And then we met people. I met people when I met Steve Davis, the ex drug dealer, in episode, I think it's five. He calls up a buddy of his who's also a drug dealer back then, and they keep telling these horror stories about Mulligan. I made a phone call to a friend of mine from West Roxbury that same hour with Lois. And he, he says to me, I says, uh, they're doing a documentary about Mulligan. What did you think? He said, word for word, he's in a place he should have been a long time ago. Nobody liked him, you know what I mean? Because all the street people didn't like him. Here's a cop that was getting making more money than the governor and, and the mayor of, of Boston at the time, driving a Corvette, brand new Corvette. How can this guy afford and cover eight condominiums in a Corvette? If you couldn't see the corruption and the way he dressed, and oh, I couldn't stand the motherfucker. And you're thinking. Oh my gosh. So this is true. It's not just what some people are saying. It's not just some of the stuff we're reading. Um, There's even people out there who are still so afraid of the Boston police of blowback that they won't, they wouldn't go on camera. The guy would, the guy I'm talking, the other drug dealer, ex-drug dealer, who's gone, you know, has gone legit as Steve Davis has, uh, wouldn't go on camera because he's like, I'm I'm afraid of blowback. I don't want people coming after me. And a lot of people would Mm. not come forward who still live in the neighborhoods. Some of the witnesses who were in that wow. parking lot that night said to us, I will not talk because we still I still live in those neighborhoods and I could still because I could become they could quote unquote call me a snitch. So yeah, it was hmm. we were we were flabbergasted and when we got all the FBI stuff, we were it was even worse because that means the FBI knew back in the eighties this was going on. And it was common practice for police officers to get, you know, kickbacks from bars and gay bars in the in the in the what they called the combat zone in Boston back then. And I read a whole history of the combat zone 
which is uh, in itself, it's like the red light district in Amsterdam. It was in a district where there's prostitution, strip clubs and drugs and gay bars. And it was shut down, but it existed for, I think, you know, 15 years or so. And the cops were taking stuff. One of the, you know, the guys we talked to said, yeah, they were, my colleagues were getting, you know, getting paid under the table. They were bagmen for the mafia. So you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is endemic. It's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. And it was yeah. like, it's like in the yeah, Departed, exactly like a film of fiction, but it wasn't. It's true. It's worse in many yeah. ways, you know, yeah. Yeah. at least in The Departed, you sort of see like the pressure that they're under to maintain, you know, the way that they do their work. And this, it was just rampant, lawless and constant. And I'm curious, you interview a couple of veteran cops in this documentary, which, by the way, it would not have been as good without them, because it's really important, I think, for the viewer to see the other side of a wrongful conviction, that there are people who, no matter what facts are presented to them, will stand by the conviction, especially cops standing by each other. But how can anybody believe when a cop would behave this way as part of the day-to-day work of doing their job that they wouldn't also behave this way when it came to investigating cases in terms of fabricating evidence, you know, pressuring witnesses, creating witnesses out of whole cloth. I find it hard to believe that anybody wouldn't believe that is true or could be true when they know the other things these cops were into. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, I mean, first of all, I'm very grateful that some of them were accepted to speak to us because we spoke to a lot of them and some of them were still in activity and their brass just didn't, wouldn't let them speak to us. And the ones that came forward, like McNelly and Dwyer, it goes, to, I would say it goes to, um, you know, the, the camaraderie of, you know, the blue, whatever's out there, you don't, you say, no, it doesn't exist. Um that 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 line that silence is is if you see one of your one of the people on the force doing you know dealing doing Ill, illicit things you don't talk about it which Dick Lair says in the documentary uh, the retired spotlight reporter journalist and it, it goes to that whole thing just blue line of silence keep it there you know you just want to keep that language out there it goes all the way to William Gross who's now the police commissioner when on Sean's dismissal when he said this is not about innocence at all. Sean Ellis is culpable. It goes to, well, why don't you guys just sit down and look at the facts? And, and, and there, mm. there's, there, there was a lot of corruption, but there's a lot of, there, let's, let, let me say this. There's a lot of great, honest cops in Boston. And there still is today. And there's still back then, because there was, there was anonymous letters going to the commissioner back then complaining about Mulligan. Mm. And I saw, I saw those letters. So there were people who knew what was going on and were just totally offended by it. But the brass was not doing anything about it. So, you know, it's it's stand behind because it's you know you have a badge and a gun and you're and you're 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 in the position of force. The unions are there to defend you. So just keep your mouth shut, even if there's some terrible things going on and your brothers are doing some terrible things. Be quiet because when you mm. open your mouth, you're going to get in trouble and you could actually fear for your life. Right. I mean, I couldn't help but wonder whether or not Mulligan was killed by a co-conspirator rather than being killed by somebody he messed with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's not hard to imagine that could be the case, right? Of course. There's 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 a lot of theories out there. And because Sarah Robinson and Brazel and probably other other people in their in their unit wanted this shut down as quickly as possible, put a lid on this before it showed a spotlight for their criminal activity. It's just insane because there were other things out there. 
I mean, in the series, we talk about one-eyed Mr. C that Misty talks about, who was, he was, you know, mm-hmm. quote-unquote Mulligan's girlfriend for years. Uh, Mulligan also went out with her sister after, because when she got too old, he he went back. He went out with her sister as well. Um, gross, so gross. Yeah, you, it's it's a, there's a lot of that out there, and it's even you know we found more and more stuff. But there there's people out there saying all different kind of things. Another cop could have done it. Another to shut him up. He owed a lot of money, having been a bagman for the mafia. Who knows? Maybe it was something to do with the mafia. Was very present. The Italian mafia was very present at the time, and he was heavily heavily in debt. There's a, there's lots of things out there, but they were there, none of them were investigated properly, and that's too bad. Yeah, for the family of Mulligan, that's too absolutely, bad. absolutely nobody wins when evidence is invented or uh, cases are bad. Nobody wins, at least of all, of course, the wrongfully convicted person. But it's not justice either, and I think that what's so difficult about watching cops defend this is that, like, that is their job. They're supposed to care about that. I have a question because there is kind of a missing piece to the story. And um, I'd like you to maybe just fill me in on on why, uh, you know, we hear about Terry Patterson in the documentary, but we don't hear from him. And his story, you don't really delve too much into. Can you just talk about, you know, his involvement with your work and, you know, his lack of participation and how that went down? Well, with Terry, um, we contacted Terry's lawyer, Jack Cunha. And basically, Jack was very nice, but just said, you know, it took us years to get Terry out of jail because Terry had been convicted mm. on the fact that his fingerprints were supposedly um, on the door of Mulligan's car, meaning that he had opened the door, taken out Mulligan's gun potentially after killing him, and then then closed the door with you know, and he had simultaneous fingerprint swipes on the door of the car. That is why Terry was convicted on his first trial because of that evidence, and. And the first lawyer, the problem with the first attorney, Nancy Hurley, was that she and Terry went to see the police. And when Terry figured they're going to find, they were going to find his car. He, he and Terry went to see. She and Terry went to see the police, and that's when you have that little bit about. They they asked, you know, Terry, did you do something, you know, horrible? No. But what about maybe? Okay, you're hiding something. Maybe it was Sean Ellis who did something, and apparently he nodded his head, saying yes. It was Sean. You know, Sean the killer, the shooter. Yes, and he nods his head in a, in a, in a yes fashion. Well, that was John Brazel who was there taking that that deposition, and apparently Nancy Hurley's lawyer says he never said that. But then they said yes, he did say that, and that was that was a back and forth between the the, the DA and all that. But that was that was put into evidence. The fingerprints are put into evidence. So basically. This is a little long-winded, but Terry Terry was then um, then convicted on those fingerprints, and then he got a new lawyer, just like Sean. A couple of years down the line, he got a new lawyer who was able to prove that those fingerprints that that evidence was junk science, and there, those were not his fingerprints. So he's he gets his conviction overturned. I would say around 2006. Then they they offer him a deal: time served, you can plead out. And he pled out because he did not want to go to a jury. He didn't trust the jury system. He didn't want to go back through a jury trial where they could have convicted him again. He wasn't like Sean. You know, he he said, okay, I'll take the deal. But they said the deal is you have to point, you have to definitely point your finger at Sean and say, Sean was definitely the killer in this case. So right. we tried to get, you know, Terry to talk because I would I loved I would have we would have, we wanted to hear Terry's version of all this and Terry just his lawyer through his lawyer it was no Terry just doesn't want to go all you know his lawyer said I'll talk to him 
But I'll tell you now, I don't think he'll do it because I would not recommend you open that, you know, go back to that and start talking about that again. This is an incredibly common practice, by the way, where um, law enforcement gets one person as part of a plea deal or an Alford plea or some other process to, you know, point a finger at somebody, often somebody innocent, just so that they can bolster their case. Mm -hmm. Like that's an incredibly common practice and it's incredibly disturbing I don't believe for a second he nodded because it was Brazel there who Mm -hmm. (laughs) said that he did. And given the fingerprint evidence on the car being totally bogus, which I suspected the minute the documentary introduces that fact that there were fingerprints found on the car, I'm like, that looks bad, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it for a second. And then later when it's revealed that they're not really his fingerprints, I was like, I knew it. I have a question for you then about the guns. Well, can, can I interrupt you just one second? Sure. On the fingerprint issue. The thing is, we didn't we didn't go deeper. I mean, there, there's there's a the slightly deeper part of that is that you also have to look at who was part of the fingerprint um, division at the Boston police exactly. and the crime scene analysis people. Um, other than the experts that they brought in from outside, the the that department, the crime scene investigation department, was just the the place where they put all the problem cops. Any cop who had an issue, any cop who had uh, too many civilian complaints or too many problems, that's where they ended up. And there are several scandals around fingerprints evidence in that department a couple years beforehand and a couple years after, which Rosemary was going to bring into evidence if it went to trial because there was real serious, you know, there was fabrication of fingerprint evidence um, and, and evidence, different sorts of evidence. So. She was going to bring that up, which says, okay, this is the fingerprint department that dealt with these fingerprints of Terry's. So that's junk science. The FBI says they, they wouldn't even use that in any case. And now we're going to go to the guns. And I'll let, I'll start, I'll, I'll, because the guns has a fingerprint issue also. Yes. Same people. Yes, the guns do have a fingerprint issue. Also, the where the guns were found is a potential issue. However... I'll tell you, again, as a viewer and as somebody who knows enough about, like, this police department in particular and other scandals that have happened, if you believe, as I do, that something that Mulligan was involved in is what got him killed and that a person he was involved with got him killed, it is a very easy line to draw that the the guns were never a part of this crime. The stealing of the guns was just not a motive. Maybe the guns weren't even stolen. They may have just even been taken at the crime scene and then planted in order to frame the person that they had decided they were going to, you know, pin this on. As a viewer, it is so easy for me to draw that line. In other cases where there's a murder weapon or a piece of evidence found near a suspect, that as a viewer, as somebody reading about it, you might say, well, you know, that looks really bad. You know, I don't know. That's kind of a stretch to think cops would have acted that way. It's not a stretch with these cops at all. Am I am I wrong to think that? Like, it's not a stretch to think these guns were very likely planted. Again, that that is what Rosemary hoped to put on trial. She wanted to retest that murder weapon. She had questions about the fact that that in some of the um, police uh, reports that officers asked if, um, and this is right after the death, before they find the murder weapon, officers and I and I and I, I don't want to say who they are because I'm not I'm not sure if it's not mm. the people that were convicted as Sarah and Robinson, but there I may may have been one of them, and they went to talk to. Mulligan's girlfriend and her roommate, because she didn't live with Mulligan, she lived in the same building, um, Mary, and she they went to talk to her, and they were asking about a 
chrome-plated, pearl-handled, or white-handled gun. And this is way before they found the murder weapon. It's a week before. So um, that says, why are they asking about this gun when they don't know? Right. Is it because Mulligan had that on him? Is it a drop gun that he kept with him? Um, there's questions about it. And then the que- questions about the where the gun, where that gun come from? Because they were, um, Rosemary was investigating that. And that would be, I would say, I can't go too far into it because it would, it, it is the next, it would have been the next um, motion for a new trial to get those convictions, the stealing the guns and having those guns overturned. That would be your next step. I was dying to know what she would have brought to trial, just so you know. I was like, the only reason I wish there was a trial was that I could have seen what she had that we didn't get to see, you know? Oh, you're not, you you, you and I both, because she would have been, Terry <laughs> Patterson would have been called to the stand, Rosa Sanchez would have been called to the stand, all these people that we didn't get, um, you know, Saren Robinson would have been called to the stand, um, I, you know, and other police officers, amongst them McNelly, um, Keeler, who you see, Dan, Danny Keeler, who you see her her question in the in the motion for a new trial, the motion for a new trial uh, footage is just such a, amazing that we found that and that it, it was Brandeis University has the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism. They were following the case, and so they got someone to film several days of that motion for a new trial. And when you see Rosemary lay into that police officer, um, and in fact, in your report, uh, you indicated that. Detective Mulligan would be found shot between the eyes um, at Walgreens. In fact, Detective Mulligan was shot between the eyes, wasn't he? He had multiple wounds to his face inflicted by your client, but I'm not sure whether it was. You don't know that they were inflicted by my client? You don't know anything like were you there? In this investigation, forensically interviews with witnesses, it became clear from co defendants that that man sitting at the table there, Sean Ellis, was responsible for the murder of John Mulligan. You want to stop that? Were you there that night, Detective Keeler? I was there. I examined Detective Were you there Mulligan. when the shots were fired? No, but... So I, you have no idea who fired those shots, do you? Oh, I have I have a very good idea of who fired those shots. You weren't there, Detective, no, were you? No, ma'am. Okay. Ma'am. So you have no idea I what can't. happened because you weren't there. Ma'am. You only know it was reported to you after the fact. You think, oh, yes. wow, I wish I would have had a trial because she would have just yes. laid into them. And she would never have let anything, anything um, go. Uh, she, she, she'll look under every rock for everything. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's, you know, I just so, I'm so amazed by her. But she was going to look into all that stuff and really say, you know, I mean, as well as, 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 you know, Mulligan's finances. Where is he getting that money from? Where did he buy eight condominiums? Where did he find, you know, and, and the finance company that financed him, how are they financing a guy like that? And it turns out that, that company belonged, potentially had connections to the mob. This case just goes on and on. I, I should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, Rosemary herself could just be a series that I would watch yes. every single week. But uh, speaking of murders, like she would have murdered all of those people on the stand. Like You would have had to do a true crime documentary about her murdering those people on the stand if there had been a trial. Yeah, yeah. That's all I could think was like that would have been really something to watch. Not that I wanted it to happen. I didn't. Uh, which brings me to something I wanted to ask you about, because you do spend some time in this documentary following the politics that are involved with criminal justice in Boston. You really follow this DA's race very closely, and it's clear that the um, stakes for the viewer and for Sean are that depending on the outcome of this race, his case could go 
in wildly different directions. Rachel Rollins, of course, ended up winning that election. Um, I think it was somewhat of a surprise because she wasn't backed by the establishment. Do you get the sense at all that she will be able to maintain that genuine edge? Or are you worried that she will have some of those edges sanded off just by being in office and having to deal with the politics? Well, I, I, it's it's funny because it, it, you, that you ask. I don't even. She's a political animal. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, but since the series has come out, she has gone on Twitter and she has tweeted about the series and saying, "This is people have to watch this, and people in my office need to watch this because this reminds me why I was elected, and that I have to get back on track. Sometimes maybe I got too overwhelmed by all the the office issues, the political issues." Of running an office, but it's time to get back on track. We are here to, you know, to for transparency, and maybe we have been, haven't been mm. as transparent as, as as we could be. So that is a huge, huge statement from somebody in her position, and she's willing to t- take it that is. risk. So, to answer your question, is I think she's had ups and downs. It's tough running that kind of an office, that size of an office, but she's saying it's time to come back to why I was elected and why. And make a difference. Make you know, make that difference. That there has to be transparency in our office, and we have to have hold the police accountable because there's still there was corruption back then. And she's saying it's not only back then; it's actually now as well. And we have to be. And as you know, the drug scandal, which is a series on Netflix as well, as it was, was, was a huge drug scandal. Twenty over twenty two thousand cases that were impacted. Um, She's saying we have to be careful and we have to hold people accountable, even if it is the police officers who we work with every day. So, yeah, she's a ballsy woman, just like Rosemary's a ballsy woman. These are ballsy women. I'm I'm I'm, you know, I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, how is Sean doing? I know that you said that you have become pretty close to him. And I'm wondering if you've heard from him since the documentary came out and if you know how well he's acclimating to life as an unincarcerated citizen. Sean is doing. Um, he's doing very, very well. He's he's built. He's been building his life. I mean, that was one of the things that was so amazing to follow was was how he's rebuilding his life. He's out there working. He's out there. He was working actually like like a month after he got out. He started working immediately, even though he had that, you know, the the fact that he would the fourth trial could have put him back in jail. Um, he was building that house where his family. He was where you know fixing up the house where his family was living. He's working now at community servings and, and, and is moving up the ladder and has got a great job actually studying at Taft University. And so he's doing very well. And um, the series, when he told me he watched it, he, he was, it wasn't like, Rosemary was ecstatic. She said, she said it just so, it was so good. And she was so amazed by the work we had done and very, you know, very, very enthusiastic. Sean has has been. It was an emotional journey for him to relive it again. But I think it's to him it's some it's a form of therapy. He's never really trusted a therapist, but he's always said that this our discussions and our talking because he also became very close to the crew, which was a a, a French crew, um, which come over and film with him, and he became very close to them. And and after filming, there was always discussions, and and how he was living things, and made we made him relive some of the darker, a lot of the darker moments. And he said it was kind of like therapy to him. And hmm. um, and that was very touching and moving to me because it's like, yeah, if I can help you in any way, I'm, I'm on board, you know. And, and we talked a lot. We talk a lot over the phone, how he's doing, how his life is evolving. 
again, you have to imagine that he was 22 years in prison in some of the most formative years. Um, he didn't build a family back then. He didn't build a career. And he didn't, he was with men 24-7 for 22 years only with men. So when he got out, he was living with his, under the same roof as his mother, his girlfriend at the time, his sister, and his niece. Uh, so it was kind of, and his niece had a daughter. So it was like, there's no men in that environment. And Sean's like, he didn't comprehend that and also how, how women function. So we discussed that. Um, and he was like, he didn't, when he came out, he didn't know how to use a smartphone, didn't know how to use a computer, didn't know how to balance a checkbook. So all those things were a learning process that, you know, obviously Rosemary's Capiccio helped him with, his, his, the people who supported him helped him with, Elaine Murphy helped him with a lot. So you, you, you've got a guy who's 12, 40, 42, 43 years old coming out of there, and he was just a, a novice in everything. And but a learner, a very fast learner, because I mean he's better than I am on social media now, better than I could, and better than any most people around him on Excel charts and all that. So he he learned very quickly, but he's still going to be healing for the rest of his life. You can't just take twenty two years of your life in prison and forget about it. There's a sound. He said, you know, he'll he, he said on the street in the street suddenly he'll hear a siren. He'll hear something. He'll hear a noise. It'll remind him of prison. He'll and he'll for. You know, for a while, he'll be back inside. And that will never leave him, he thinks. Remy, this documentary is going to be watched by millions of people. What are you hoping that the viewer will take away from it? Like, how might it change them having watched it? I'm hoping that viewers will take away um, from trial four is that, first and foremost, that they can make a difference, that through voting... In Boston, they voted in Rachel Rollins for voting recently in the presidential elections. They can make a change. They can bring a change. And their voices from whatever walk of life you, you, you're coming from, even if you're incarcerated for, misdemeanor, you know, for, for certain crimes, you can vote. And people think, oh, it's not worth voting and never changed anything. Well, that's not true. In this case, in Sean's case, it did change something. Rachel Rollins being voted in changed the fact that they they dismissed the case, not in a very, you know, in the, as in the way that you see in the series, um, which is very in, disingenuous to Sean and what he went through. Um, but you can make a change. That That's one of the things. The other thing is that there is, people should get out there and speak. If they are witnesses of unfair um, police practices, they should get out there and say it and state it and get it out there. Um, that there are, Many other people like Sean who were in prison, um, wrongfully convicted. So people should get out there and voice that. It should be heard. And and racism. This is this is also systemic racism, and it, it shouldn't be happening. Um, in Sean's case, it is all over the place. Boston was considered still up until, you know, recently when I was when we were filming there, there was a huge there was spot the spotlight team, the most incredible the Boston Globe spotlight team put out a whole series in 2000, beginning 2019, I believe, no, 2018, about racism. And you should look at that. It's, it's, it's just the racism in Boston, and it is still there. And it's still, you know, a fact that it's very prevalent in, in the United States. And not only, I mean, I live in France now, and it's in France as well, that there is systemic racism. And um, it is, the terrible things are happening because of that. And the viewer to me should take that and go on social media and 
denounce those kind of things and, and to do it. And it does make a difference. I really think it does. And it, it is injustice. I mean, it's, and, you know, the corruption has infected corruption on any level, especially in the police department, has infect, infects everything afterwards. There's investigations, the trials, um, the work the DAs do behind that. If they're using, they have false investigations, false, you know, evidence, they're believing it's good evidence and they're going to they're going to convict somebody on that evidence so it's that should be people you know if you're a police officer if you're a da if you're a lawyer of any kind and you're 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 coming across this kind of stuff people should get out there and say this is not you no know, right and if, if you know and there's law students who saw this you know saw, are seeing this they should be thinking about that when one of the things we see at the end, when Sean's speaking in front of a bunch of young people, it's actually at the Northeastern Law Law School and first-year law students. And there's a whole bunch of exonerees who are speaking on that panel. And they're saying, you know, lawyers didn't take us seriously. Lawyers took our, you know, they were very flippant about our cases. And that shouldn't be happening. If someone says, mm. you know, this is not, you know, someone says, Please look into this case. There's there's elements of this case because a lot of times people who are being convicted or, or, or convicts know their cases very well. Sean Ellis studied his case. He knew it. And when he said, this is irregular, this is irregular, his lawyers took him seriously. That's the difference between Sean's lawyers and other lawyers. So, yeah, get out there. Lawyers, look at the series. Police officers, look at the series. DAs, look at the series because it is a case study of what can go wrong and how badly it can go wrong and how it can ruin people's lives. Luckily, Sean is resilient. Luckily, Sean has always been a positive person. Even in prison, he got his paralegal certificate. And he was studying his case and he was helping other inmates and other inmates had helped him at the time. And that's how he learned that they have to be their first advocates. They have to be, they have to know their cases inside and out and not get entrenched in the, you know, in the, in the in the prison a culture uh, of drugs of violence get out of get get away from that and then fight your case and fight and and help i mean he was he was actually commended i think by prison wardens because he was helping them with you know with newly incarcerated people how you know with the young guys were coming in there he was working with them with the wardens to help them get used to prison and do the right thing and not get involved in the in the wrong the bad stuff that goes on in prison so long-winded answer. Sorry. But yeah, that's what I want them to come away with. I'm a talker. I'm sorry. Oh, Remy, when it comes to this documentary, I could talk about it for weeks. I don't use this word lightly, but um, Trial 4, it's a masterpiece. I hope everyone watches it. Thank you so much for talking to me about what it was like to make it. I really appreciate it. But I, I, I'm very happy. But please, again, just remember that this is this is a team effort. I mean, there was Jean-Xavier Lestrade of Staircase and Mathieu Belgiti of Staircase. There was Gamont, who was very helpful and supportive. There was Alison Luchak and Ben um, Travers, from, who were the producers. I, I, I just say that because it was a teamwork. And then there's a lot of other people on the ground in Boston, a wonderful crew in France as well, and a lot of editors. I mean, we worked a year and a half on the editing. So there was a lot of stuff. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to listen to me. But it is a team effort and a great team. And then we were highly supported by Netflix. They were so supportive and understanding along the process, which was long, over three years. So, yeah, it's been a great. It's been a, it's been a wonderful ride. Well, to you and the team, thanks so much. Thank you. 
That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Remy Burkell. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime, how we cover it in the media, and even a review of Trial 4, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, TV, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for upcoming episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.